This episode of Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Wooly Bull Highland Cow Slippers. They're shaggy, fun slippers that you can wear around your house. Trust me, they look like they dust as I walk. I've, I've left a path definitely from the studio to, uh, to the kitchen. Anyway, BunnySlippers.com. This month we will be continuing with more W.B. Du Bois, and we will be listening to The Souls of Black Folk, which is a nonfiction piece, a historical piece, a piece of uh, historical fact. Um, yeah, enjoy. There's There's some music in here. And not by me, I didn't score any of this, but enjoy The Souls of Black Folk by W.B. Du Bois. Here we go. The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Music and text recorded by Toria's uncle. Chapter 2, Part 2. To understand and criticize intelligently so vast a work, one must not forget an instant the drift of things in the later 60s. Lee had surrendered, Lincoln was dead, and Johnson and Congress were at loggerheads. The 13th Amendment was adopted, the 14th pending, and the 15th declared in force in 1870. Guerrilla raiding, the ever-present flickering afterflame of war, was spending its forces against the Negroes, and all the southern land was awakening, as from some wild dream to poverty and social revolution. In a time of perfect calm, amid willing neighbors and streaming wealth, the social uplifting of four million slaves to an assured and self-sustaining place in the body politic and economic would have been a Herculean task. But when to the inherent difficulties of so delicate and nice a social operation were added the spite and hate of conflict, the hell of war, when suspicion and cruelty were rife and gaunt hunger wept beside bereavement, in such a case, the work of any instrument of social regeneration was in large part foredoomed to failure. The very name of the Bureau stood for a thing in the South which, for two centuries and better, men had refused even to argue. That life amid free Negroes was simply unthinkable, the maddest of experiments. The agents that the Bureau could command varied all the way from unselfish philanthropists to narrow-minded busybodies and thieves. And even though it be true that the average was far better than the worst, it was the occasional fly that helped spoil the ointment. Then, amid all, crouched the freed slave, bewildered between friend and foe. He had emerged from slavery. Not the worst slavery in the world, not a slavery that made all life unbearable, rather a slavery that had here and there something of kindliness, fidelity, and happiness, but with all slavery which, so far as human aspiration and desert were concerned, classed the black man and the ox together. And the Negro knew full well that whatever their deeper convictions may have been, Southern men had fought with desperate energy to perpetuate this slavery under which the black masses with half-articulate thought had writhed and shivered. They welcomed freedom with a cry. They shrank from the master who still strove for their chains. They fled to the friends that had freed them, even though those friends stood ready to use them as a club for driving the recalcitrant South back into loyalty. So the cleft between the white and black South grew. Idle to say it never should have been. It was as inevitable as its results were pitiable. 
curiously incongruous elements were left arrayed against each other. The North, the government, the carpetbagger, and the slave here, and there, all the South that was white, whether gentleman or vagabond, honest man or rascal, lawless murderer or martyr to duty. Thus it is doubly difficult to write of this period calmly. So intense was the feeling, so mighty the human passions that swayed and blinded men. Amid it all, two figures ever stand to typify that day to coming ages, the one a gray-haired gentleman whose fathers had quit themselves like men, whose sons lay in nameless graves, who bowed to the evil of slavery because its abolition threatened untold ill to all, who stood at last in the evening of life, a blighted, ruined form with hate in his eyes, and the other, a form hovering, dark and motherlike, her awful face black with the mists of centuries, had aforetime quailed at that white master's command, had bent in love over the cradles of his sons and daughters, and closed in death the sunken eyes of his wife. I, too, at his behest, had laid herself low to his lust, and borne a tawny man-child to the world, only to see her dark boy's limbs scattered to the winds by midnight marauders riding after damned niggers. These were the saddest sights of that woeful day. And no man clasped the hands of these two passing figures of the present past, but hating they went to their long home, and hating their children's children live today. Here then was the field of work for the Freedmen's Bureau, and since with some hesitation it was continued by the Act of 1868 until 1869, let us look upon four years of its work as a whole. There were, in 1868, 900 bureau officials scattered from Washington to Texas, ruling directly and indirectly many millions of men. The deeds of these rulers fall mainly under seven heads. The relief of physical suffering, the overseeing of the beginnings of free labor, the buying and selling of land, the establishment of schools, the paying of bounties, the administration of justice, and the financiering of all these activities. Up to June 1869, over half a million patients had been treated by Bureau of Physicians and Surgeons, and 60 hospitals and asylums had been in operation. In 50 months, 21 million free rations were distributed at a cost of over $4 million. Next came the difficult question of labor. First, 30,000 black men were transported from the refuges and relief stations back to the farms, back to the critical trial of a new way of working. Plain instructions went out from Washington. The laborers must be free to choose their employers. No fixed rate of wages was prescribed, and there was to be no peonage or forced labor. So far, so good. But where local agents differed toto silo in capacity and character, where the personnel was continually changing, the outcome was necessarily varied. The largest element of success lay in the fact that the majority of the freedmen were willing, even eager, to work. So labor contracts were written, 50,000 in a single state, laborers advised, wages guaranteed, and employers supplied. In truth, the organization became a vast labor bureau, not perfect, indeed notably defective here and there, but on the whole successful beyond the dreams of thoughtful men. The two great obstacles which confronted the officials were the tyrant and the idler, the slaveholder who was determined to perpetuate slavery under another name, and the freedmen who regarded freedom as perpetual rest. 
the devil and the deep sea. In the work of establishing the Negroes as peasant proprietors, the Bureau was from the first handicapped and at last absolutely checked. Something was done and larger things were planned. Abandoned lands were leased so long as they remained in the hands of the Bureau and a total revenue of nearly half a million dollars derived from black tenants. Some other lands to which the nation had gained title were sold on easy terms and public lands were opened for settlement to the very few freedmen who had tools and capital. But the vision of forty acres and a mule, the righteous and reasonable ambition to become a landholder, which the nation had all but categorically promised the freedmen, was destined in most cases to bitter disappointment. And those men of marvelous hindsight who are today seeking to preach the Negro back to the present peonage of the soil know well, or ought to know, that the opportunity of binding the Negro peasant willingly to the soil was lost on that day when the commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau had to go to South Carolina and tell the weeping freedmen after their years of toil that their land was not theirs, that there was a mistake somewhere. If by 1874 the Georgia Negro alone owned 350,000 acres of land, it was by grace of his thrift rather than by bounty of the government. The greatest success of the Freedmen's Bureau lay in the planting of the free school among Negroes and the idea of free elementary education among all classes in the South. It not only called the schoolmistresses through the benevolent agencies and built them schoolhouses, but it helped discover and support such apostles of human culture as Edmund Ware, Samuel Armstrong, and Erastus Cravath. The opposition to Negro education in the South was at first bitter and showed itself in ashes, insult, and blood. For the South believed an educated Negro to be a dangerous Negro. And the South was not wholly wrong, for education among all kinds of men always has had and always will have an element of danger and revolution, of dissatisfaction and discontent. Nevertheless, men strive to know. Perhaps some inkling of this paradox, even in the unquiet days of the Bureau, helped the bayonets allay an opposition to human training, which still today lies smoldering in the South but not flaming. Fisk, Atlanta, Howard, and Hampton were founded in these days, and six million dollars were expended for educational work, seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars of which the freedmen themselves gave of their poverty. Such contributions, together with the buying of land and various other enterprises, showed that the ex-slave was handling some free capital already. The chief initial source of this was labor in the army and his pay and bounty as a soldier, Payments to Negro soldiers were at first complicated by the ignorance of the recipients and the fact that the quotas of colored regiments from northern states were largely filled by recruits from the south unknown to their fellow soldiers. Consequently, payments were accompanied by such frauds that Congress, by joint resolution in 1867, put the whole matter in the hands of the Freedmen's Bureau. In two years, $6 million was thus distributed to 5,000 claimants, and in the end the sum exceeded $8 million. Even in this system, fraud was frequent, but still the work put needed capital in the hands of practical paupers, and some, at least, was well spent. The most perplexing and least successful part of the Bureau's work lay in the exercise of its judicial functions. The regular Bureau court consisted of one representative of the employer, one of the Negro, and one of the Bureau. If the Bureau could have maintained a perfectly judicial attitude, this arrangement would have been ideal and must in time have gained confidence. But the nature of its other activities and the character of its personnel prejudiced the Bureau in favor of the black litigants and led without doubt to much injustice and annoyance. 
On the other hand, to leave the Negro in the hands of southern courts was impossible. In a distracted land where slavery had hardly fallen, to keep the strong from wanton abuse of the weak and the weak from gloating insolently over the half-shorn strength of the strong was a thankless, hopeless task. The former masters of the land were peremptorily ordered about, seized and imprisoned, and punished over and again with scant courtesy from army officers. The former slaves were intimidated, beaten, raped, and butchered by angry and revengeful men. Bureau courts tended to become centers simply for punishing whites, while the regular civil courts tended to become solely institutions for perpetuating the slavery of blacks. Almost every law and method ingenuity could devise was employed by the legislatures to reduce the Negroes to serfdom, to make them the slaves of the state, if not of individual owners, while the Bureau officials too often were found striving to put the bottom rail on top and gave the freedmen a power and independence which they could not yet use. It is all well enough for us of another generation to wax wise with advice to those who bore the burden in the heat of the day. It is full easy now to see that the man who lost home, fortune, and family at a stroke and saw his land ruled by mules and niggers was really benefited by the passing of slavery. It is not difficult now to say to the young freedman, cheated and cuffed about, who has seen his father's head beaten to a jelly and his own mother namelessly assaulted, that the meek shall inherit the earth. Above all, nothing is more convenient than to heap on the Freedmen's Bureau all the evils of that evil day and damn it utterly for every mistake and blunder that was made. All this is easy, but it is neither sensible nor just. Someone had blundered, but that was long before Oliver Howard was born. There was criminal aggression and needless neglect, but without some system of control there would have been far more than there was. Had that control been from within, the Negro would have been re-enslaved to all intents and purposes. Coming as the control did from without, perfect men and methods would have bettered all things. And even with imperfect agents and questionable methods, the work accomplished was not undeserving of commendation. Such was the dawn of freedom. Such was the work of the Freedmen's Bureau, which, summed up in brief, may be epitomized thus. For some $15 million, beside the sums spent before 1865 and the dole of benevolent societies, this Bureau set going a system of free labor, established a beginning of peasant proprietorship, secured the recognition of black freedmen before courts of law, and founded the Free Common School in the South. On the other hand, it failed to begin the establishment of goodwill between ex-masters and freedmen to guard its work wholly from paternalistic methods which discouraged self-reliance and to carry out to any considerable extent its implied promises to furnish the freedmen with land. Its successes were the result of hard work supplemented by the aid of philanthropists and the eager striving of black men. Its failures were the result of bad local agents, the inherent difficulties of the work, and national neglect. Such an institution, from its wide powers, great responsibilities, large control of monies, and generally conspicuous position was naturally open to repeated and bitter attack. It sustained a searching congressional investigation at the insistence of Fernando Wood in 1870. Its archives and few remaining functions were, with blunt discourtesy, transferred from Howard's control in his absence to the supervision of Secretary of War Belknap in 1872 on the Secretary's recommendation. Finally, in consequence of grave intimations of wrongdoing made by the Secretary and his subordinates, General Howard was court-martialed in 1874. In both of these trials, the Commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau was officially exonerated from any willful misdoing, and his work commended. 
Nevertheless, many unpleasant things were brought to light. The methods of transacting the business of the Bureau were faulty. Several cases of defalcation were proved and other frauds strongly suspected. There were some business transactions which savored of dangerous speculation, if not dishonesty. And around it all lay the smirch of the Freedmen's Bank. Morally and practically, the Freedmen's Bank was part of the Freedmen's Bureau, although it had no legal connection with it. With the prestige of the government back of it, and a directing board of unusual respectability and national reputation, this banking institution had made a remarkable start in the development of that thrift among black folk which slavery had kept them from knowing. Then, in one sad day, came the crash. All the hard-earned dollars of the freedmen disappeared. But that was the least of the loss. All the faith in saving went too, and much of the faith in men. And that was a loss that a nation which today sneers at Negro shiftlessness has never yet made good. Not even ten additional years of slavery could have done so much to throttle the thrift of the freedmen as the mismanagement and bankruptcy of the series of savings banks chartered by the nation for their especial aid. Where all the blame should rest, it is hard to say. Whether the Bureau and the Bank died chiefly by reason of the blows of its selfish friends or the dark machinations of its foes, perhaps even time will never reveal, for here lies unwritten history. Of the foes without the Bureau, the bitterest were those who attacked not so much its conduct or policy under the law as the necessity for any such institution at all. Such attacks came primarily from the border states and the South. And they were summed up by Senator Davis of Kentucky when he moved to entitle the Act of 1866 a bill to promote strife and conflict between the white and black races by a grant of unconstitutional power. The argument gathered tremendous strength, South and North, but its very strength was its weakness, for, argued the plain common sense of the nation, if it is unconstitutional, unpractical, and futile for the nation to stand guardian over its helpless wards, then there is left but one alternative to make those wards their own guardians by arming them with the ballot. Moreover, the path of the practical politician pointed the same way. For, argued this opportunist, if we cannot peacefully reconstruct the South with white votes, we certainly can with black votes. So justice and force joined hands. The alternative thus offered the nation was not between full and restricted Negro suffrage, else every sensible man, black and white, would have easily chosen the latter, it was rather a choice between suffrage and slavery, after endless blood and gold had flowed to sweep human bondage away. Not a single southern legislature stood ready to admit a Negro under any conditions to the polls. Not a single southern legislature believed free Negro labor was possible without a system of restrictions that took all its freedom away. There was scarcely a white man in the South who did not honestly regard emancipation as a crime and its practical nullification as a duty. In such a situation, the granting of the ballot to the black man was a necessity, the very least a guilty nation could grant a wronged race, and the only method of compelling the South to accept the results of the war. Thus, Negro suffrage ended a civil war by beginning a race feud, and some felt gratitude toward the race thus sacrificed in its swaddling clothes on the altar of national integrity, and some felt and feel only indifference and contempt 
Had political exigencies been less pressing, the opposition to government guardianship of Negroes less bitter, and the attachment to the slave system less strong, the social seer can well imagine a far better policy, a permanent Freedmen's Bureau, with a national system of Negro schools, a carefully supervised employment and labor office, a system of impartial protection before the regular courts, and such institutions for social betterment as savings banks, land and building associations, and social settlements. All this vast expenditure of money and brains might have formed a great school of prospective citizenship and solved in a way we have not yet solved the most perplexing and persistent of the Negro problems. That such an institution was unthinkable in 1870 was due in part to certain acts of the Freedmen's Bureau itself. It came to regard its work as merely temporary and Negro suffrage as a final answer to all present perplexities. The political ambition of many of its agents and protégés led it far afield into questionable activities until the South, nursing its own deep prejudices, came easily to ignore all the good deeds of the Bureau and hate its very name with perfect hatred. So the Freedmen's Bureau died, and its child was the 15th Amendment. The passing of a great human institution before its work is done, like the untimely passing of a single soul, but leaves a legacy of striving for other men. The legacy of the Freedmen's Bureau is the heavy heritage of this generation. Today, when new and vaster problems are destined to strain every fiber of the national mind and soul, would it not be well to count this legacy honestly and carefully? For this much all men know, despite compromise, war, and struggle, the Negro is not free. In the backwoods of the Gulf states, for miles and miles, he may not leave the plantation of his birth. In well-nigh the whole rural south, the black farmers are peons, bound by law and custom to an economic slavery, from which the only escape is death or the penitentiary. In the most cultured sections and cities of the south, the Negroes are a segregated, servile caste with restricted rights and privileges. Before the courts, both in law and custom, they stand on a different and peculiar basis. Taxation without representation is the rule of their political life. And the result of all this is, and in nature must have been, lawlessness and crime. That is the large legacy of the Freedmen's Bureau, the work it did not do because it could not. I have seen a land right merry with the sun, where children sing and rolling hills lie like passioned women wanton with harvest. And there in the king's highway sat and sits a figure veiled and bowed, by which the traveler's footsteps hasten as they go. On the tainted air broods fear. Three centuries' thought has been the raising and unveiling of that bowed human heart. And now, behold, a century new for the duty and the deed. The problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. End of chapter 2.
The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Music and text recorded by Toria's uncle. Chapter 3 of Mr. Booker T. Washington and others. From birth till death enslaved, in word and deed unmanned, hereditary bondsmen, know ye not who would be free themselves must strike the blow? Byron. Easily the most striking thing in the history of the American Negro since 1876 is the ascendancy of Mr. Booker T. Washington. It began at the time when war memories and ideals were rapidly passing. A day of astonishing commercial development was dawning. A sense of doubt and hesitation overtook the freedmen's sons. Then it was that his leading began. Mr. Washington came with a simple, definite program at the psychological moment when the nation was a little ashamed of having bestowed so much sentiment on Negroes and was concentrating its energies on dollars. His program of industrial education, conciliation of the South, and submission and silence as to civil and political rights was not wholly original. The free Negroes from 1830 up to wartime had striven to build industrial schools, and the American Missionary Association had from the first taught various trades, and Price and others had sought a way of honorable alliance with the best of the Southerners. But Mr. Washington first indissolubly linked these things. He put enthusiasm, unlimited energy, and perfect faith into his program and changed it from a bypath into a veritable way of life, and the tale of the methods by which he did this is a fascinating study of human life. It startled the nation to hear a Negro advocating such a program after many decades of bitter complaint. It startled and won the applause of the South. It interested and won the admiration of the North. And after a confused murmur of protest, it silenced, if it did not convert, the Negroes themselves to gain the sympathy and cooperation of the various elements comprising the white South was Mr. Washington's first task, and this, at the time Tuskegee was founded, seemed for a black man well-nigh impossible. And yet, ten years later, it was done in the words spoken at Atlanta. In all things purely social, we can be as separate as the five fingers, and yet one as the hand in all things essential to mutual progress. This Atlanta Compromise is, by all odds, the most notable thing in Mr. Washington's career. The South interpreted it in different ways. The Radicals received it as a complete surrender of the demand for civil and political equality. The Conservatives as a generously conceived working basis for mutual understanding. So both approved it. And today, its author is certainly the most distinguished Southerner since Jefferson Davis and the one with the largest personal following.
Next to this achievement comes Mr. Washington's work in gaining place and consideration in the North. Others, less shrewd and tactful, had formerly essayed to sit on these two stools and had fallen between them. But as Mr. Washington knew the heart of the South from birth and training, so by singular insight he intuitively grasped the spirit of the age which was dominating the North. And so thoroughly did he learn the speech and thought of triumphant commercialism and the ideals of material prosperity that the picture of a lone black boy poring over a French grammar amid the weeds and dirt of a neglected home soon seemed to him the acme of absurdities. One wonders what Socrates and St. Francis of Assisi would say to this. And yet, this very singleness of vision and thorough oneness with his age is a mark of the successful man. It is as though nature must needs make men narrow in order to give them force. So Mr. Washington's cult has gained unquestioning followers. His work has wonderfully prospered. His friends are legion, and his enemies are confounded. Today he stands as the one recognized spokesman of his ten million fellows, and one of the most notable figures in a nation of seventy millions. One hesitates, therefore, to criticize a life which, beginning with so little, has done so much. And yet the time has come when one may speak in all sincerity and utter courtesy of the mistakes and shortcomings of Mr. Washington's career, as well as of his triumphs, without being thought captious or envious, and without forgetting that it is easier to do ill than well in the world. The criticism that has hitherto met Mr. Washington has not always been of this broad character. In the South especially has he had to walk warily to avoid the harshest judgments, and naturally so, for he is dealing with the one subject of deepest sensitiveness to that section. Twice, once when at the Chicago celebration of the Spanish-American War he alluded to the color prejudice that is eating away the vitals of the South, and once when he dined with President Roosevelt, has the resulting Southern criticism been violent enough to threaten seriously his popularity? In the North, the feeling has several times forced itself into words that Mr. Washington's counsels of submissions overlooked certain elements of true manhood and that his educational program was unnecessarily narrow. Usually, however, such criticism has not found open expression, although, too, the spiritual sons of the abolitionists have not been prepared to acknowledge that the schools founded before Tuskegee by men of broad ideals and self-sacrificing spirit were wholly failures or worthy of ridicule. While then criticism has not failed to follow Mr. Washington, yet the prevailing public opinion of the land has been but too willing to deliver the solution of a wearisome problem into his hands and say, if that is all you and your race ask, take it. Among his own people, however, Mr. Washington has encountered the strongest and most lasting opposition, amounting at times to bitterness, and even today continuing strong and insistent, even though largely silenced in outward expression by the public opinion of the nation. Some of this opposition is, of course, mere envy, the disappointment of displaced demagogues, and the spite of narrow minds. But aside from this, there is among educated and thoughtful colored men in all parts of the land a feeling of deep regret, sorrow, and apprehension at the wide currency and ascendancy which some of Mr. Washington's theories have gained. These same men admire his sincerity of purpose and are willing to forgive much to honest endeavor which is doing something worth the doing. They cooperate with Mr. Washington as far as they conscientiously can. 
And indeed, it is no ordinary tribute to this man's tact and power that, steering as he must between so many diverse interests and opinions, he so largely retains the respect of all. But the hushing of the criticism of honest opponents is a dangerous thing. It leads some of the best of the critics to unfortunate silence and paralysis of effort, and others to burst into speech so passionately and intemperately as to lose listeners. Honest and earnest criticism from those whose interests are most nearly touched, criticism of writers by readers, this is the soul of democracy and the safeguard of modern society. If the best of the American Negroes receive by outer pressure a leader whom they had not recognized before, manifestly there is here a certain palpable gain, yet there is also irreparable loss, a loss of that peculiarly valuable education which a group receives when, by search and criticism, it finds and commissions its own leaders. The way in which this is done is at once the most elementary and the nicest problem of social growth. History is but the record of such group leadership, and yet how infinitely changeful is its type and character, and of all types and kinds, what can be more instructive than the leadership of a group within a group, that curious double movement where real progress may be negative and actual advance be relative retrogression? All this is the social student's inspiration and despair. Now, in the past, the American Negro has had instructive experience in the choosing of group leaders, founding thus a peculiar dynasty, which, in the light of present conditions, is worthwhile studying. When sticks and stones and beasts form the sole environment of a people, their attitude is largely one of determined opposition to and conquest of natural forces. But when to earth and brute is added an environment of men and ideas, then the attitude of the imprisoned group may take three main forms. A feeling of revolt and revenge, an attempt to adjust all thought and action to the will of the greater group, or finally, a determined effort at self-realization and self-development, despite environing opinion. The influence of all these attitudes at various times can be traced in the history of the American Negro and in the evolution of his successive leaders. Before 1750, while the fire of African freedom still burned in the veins of the slaves, there was in all leadership or attempted leadership but the one motive of revolt and revenge, typified in the terrible Maroons, the Danish Blacks, and Cato of Stono, and veiling all the Americas in fear of insurrection. The liberalizing tendencies of the latter half of the 18th century brought, along with kindlier relations between black and white, thoughts of ultimate adjustment and assimilation. Such aspiration was especially voiced in the earnest songs of Phyllis, in the martyrdom of Attucks, the fighting of Salem and Poor, the intellectual accomplishments of Banneker and Durham, and the political demands of the Cuffees, Stern financial and social stress after the war cooled much of the previous humanitarian ardor. The disappointment and impatience of the Negroes at the persistence of slavery and serfdom voiced itself in two movements. The slaves in the South, aroused undoubtedly by vague rumors of the Haitian revolt, made three fierce attempts at insurrection. In 1800 under Gabriel in Virginia, in 1822 under Vesey in Carolina, and in 1831, again in Virginia under the terrible Nat Turner. 
In the free states, on the other hand, a new and curious attempt at self-development was made. In Philadelphia and New York, color prescription led to a withdrawal of Negro communicants from white churches and the formation of a peculiar socio-religious institution among the Negroes known as the African Church, an organization still living and controlling in its various branches over a million of men. Walker's wild appeal against the trend of the times showed how the world was changing after the coming of the cotton gin. By 1830, slavery seemed hopelessly fastened on the South, and the slaves thoroughly cowed into submission. The free Negroes of the North, inspired by the mulatto immigrants from the West Indies, began to change the basis of their demands. They recognized the slavery of slaves, but insisted that they themselves were freemen and sought assimilation and amalgamation with the nation on the same terms with other men. Thus, Fortune and Purvis of Philadelphia, Shad of Wilmington, Du Bois of New Haven, Barbados of Boston, and others strove singly and together as men, they said, not as slaves, as people of color, not as Negroes. The trend of the times, however, refused them recognition, save in individual and exceptional cases, considered them as one with all the despised blacks, and they soon found themselves striving to keep even the rights they formerly had of voting and working and moving as freemen. Schemes of migration and colonization arose among them, but these they refused to entertain, and they eventually turned to the abolition movement as a final refuge. Here, led by Raymond, Nell, Wells Brown, and Douglas, a new period of self-assertion and self-development dawned. To be sure, ultimate freedom and assimilation was the ideal before the leaders, but the assertion of the manhood rights of the Negro by himself was the main reliance, and John Brown's raid was the extreme of its logic. After the war and emancipation, the great former Frederick Douglass, the greatest of American Negro leaders, still led the host. Self-assertion, especially in political lines, was the main program, and behind Douglass came Elliot, Bruce, and Langston, and the Reconstruction politicians, and less conspicuous but of greater social significance, Alexander Crummel and Bishop Daniel Payne. Then came the Revolution of 1876, the suppression of the Negro votes, the changing and shifting of ideals, and the seeking of new lights in the great night. Douglas, in his old age, still bravely stood for the ideals of his early manhood, ultimate assimilation through self-assertion and on no other terms. For a time, Price arose as a new leader, destined, it seemed, not to give up, but to restate the old ideals in a form less repugnant to the white self. But he passed away, in his prime. Then came the new leader. Nearly all the former ones had become leaders by the silent suffrage of their fellows, had sought to lead their own people alone, and were usually, save Douglas, little known outside their race. But Booker T. Washington arose as essentially the leader not of one race, but of two, a compromiser between the South, the North, and the Negro. Naturally, the Negroes resented, at first bitterly, signs of compromise which surrendered their civil and political rights, even though this was to be exchanged for larger chances of economic development. The rich and dominating North, however, was not only weary of the race problem, but was investing largely in Southern enterprises and welcomed any method of peaceful cooperation. Thus, by national opinion, the Negroes began to recognize Mr. Washington's leadership 
and the voice of criticism was hushed. Mr. Washington represents in Negro thought the old attitude of adjustment at submission, but adjustment at such a peculiar time as to make his program unique. This is an age of unusual economic development, and Mr. Washington's program naturally takes an economic cast, becoming a gospel of work and money to such an extent as apparently almost completely to overshadow the higher aims of life. Moreover, this is an age when the more advanced races are coming in closer contact with the less developed races, and the race feeling is therefore intensified, and Mr. Washington's program practically accepts the alleged inferiority of the Negro races. Again, in our own land, the reaction from the sentiment of wartime has given impetus to race prejudice against Negroes. And Mr. Washington withdraws many of the high demands of Negroes as men and American citizens. In other periods of intensified prejudice, all the Negroes' tendency to self-assertion has been called forth. At this period, a policy of submission is advocated. In the history of nearly all other races and peoples, the doctrine preached at such crises has been that manly self-respect is worth more than lands and houses, and that a people who voluntarily surrender such respect or cease striving for it are not worth civilizing. In answer to this, it has been claimed that the Negro can survive only through submission. Mr. Washington distinctly asked that black people give up, at least for the present, three things. First, political power. Second, insistence on civil rights. Third, higher education of Negro youth. And concentrate all their energies on industrial education and accumulation of wealth and the conciliation of the South. This policy has been courageously and insistently advocated for over 15 years and has been triumphant for perhaps 10 years. As a result of this tender of the palm branch, what has been the return? In these years there have occurred, one, the disfranchisement of the Negro, two, the legal creation of a distinct status of civil inferiority for the Negro, three, the steady withdrawal of aid from institutions for the higher training of the Negro. These movements are not, to be sure, direct results of Mr. Washington's teachings, but his propaganda has, without a shadow of doubt, helped their speedier accomplishment. The question then comes, is it possible and probable that nine millions of men can make effective progress in economic lines if they are deprived of political rights, made a servile caste, and allowed only the most meager chance for developing their exceptional men? If history and reason give any distinct answer to these questions, it is an emphatic no. And Mr. Washington thus faces the triple paradox of his career. One, he is striving nobly to make Negro artisans businessmen and property owners, but it is utterly impossible under modern competitive methods for working men and property owners to defend their rights and exist without the right of suffrage. Two, he insists on thrift and self-respect, but at the same time counsels a silent submission to civic inferiority such as is bound to sap the manhood of any race in the long run. Three, he advocates common school and industrial training and depreciates institutions of higher learning, but neither the Negro common schools nor Tuskegee itself could remain open a day were it not for teachers trained in Negro colleges or trained by their graduates. 
This triple paradox in Mr. Washington's position is the object of criticism by two classes of colored Americans. One class is spiritually descended from Toussaint the Savior through Gabriel, Vesey, and Turner, and they represent the attitude of revolt and revenge. They hate the white South blindly and distrust the white race generally, and so far as they agree on definite action, think that the Negro's only hope lies in emigration beyond the borders of the United States. And yet, by the irony of fate, nothing has more effectually made this program seem hopeless than the recent course of the United States toward weaker and darker peoples in the West Indies, Hawaii, and the Philippines. For where in the world may we go and be safe from lying and brute force? The other class of Negroes who cannot agree with Mr. Washington has hitherto said little aloud. They deprecate the sight of scattered councils, of internal disagreement, and especially they dislike making their just criticism of a useful and earnest man an excuse for a general discharge of venom from small-minded opponents. Nevertheless, the questions involved are so fundamental and serious that it is difficult to see how men like the Grimkeys, Kelly Miller, J.W.E. Bowen, and other representatives of this group can much longer be silent. Such men feel in conscience bound to ask of this nation three things. One, the right to vote. Two, civic equality. Three, the education of youth according to ability. They acknowledge Mr. Washington's invaluable service in counseling patience and courtesy in such demands. They do not ask that ignorant black men vote when ignorant whites are debarred or that any reasonable restrictions in the suffrage should not be applied. They know that the low social level of the mass of the race is responsible for much discrimination against it. But they also know, and the nation knows, that relentless color prejudice is more often a cause than a result of the Negro's degradation. They seek the abatement of this relic of barbarism and not its systematic encouragement and pampering by all agencies of social power from the Associated Press to the Church of Christ. They advocate, with Mr. Washington, a broad system of Negro common schools supplemented by thorough industrial training. But they are surprised that a man of Mr. Washington's insight cannot see that no such educational system ever has rested or can rest on any other basis than that of the well-equipped college and university. And they insist that there is demand for a few such institutions throughout the South to train the best of the Negro youth as teachers, professional men, and leaders. This group of men honor Mr. Washington for his attitude of conciliation toward the white South. They accept the Atlanta Compromise in its broadest interpretation. They recognize with him many signs of promise, many men of high purpose and fair judgment in this section. They know that no easy task has been laid upon a region already tottering under heavy burdens. But, nevertheless, they insist that the way to truth and right lies in straightforward honesty, not in indiscriminate flattery, in praising those of the South who do well and criticizing uncompromisingly those who do ill, in taking advantage of the opportunities at hand and urging their fellows to do the same, but at the same time in remembering that only a firm adherence to their higher ideals and aspirations will ever keep those ideals within the realm of possibility. They do not expect that the free right to vote, to enjoy civic rights, and to be educated will come in a moment. 
They do not expect to see the bias and prejudices of years disappear at the blast of a trumpet. But they are absolutely certain that the way for a people to gain their reasonable rights is not by voluntarily throwing them away and insisting that they do not want them. That the way for a people to gain respect is not by continually belittling and ridiculing themselves. That, on the contrary, Negroes must insist continually, in season and out of season, that voting is necessary to modern manhood. That color discrimination is barbarism and that black boys need education as well as white boys. In failing thus to state plainly and unequivocally the legitimate demands of their people, even at the cost of opposing an honored leader, the thinking classes of American Negroes would shirk a heavy responsibility, a responsibility to themselves, a responsibility to the struggling masses, a responsibility to the darker races of men whose future depends so largely on this American experiment but especially a responsibility to this nation, this common fatherland. It is wrong to encourage a man or a people in evil doing. It is wrong to aid and abet a national crime simply because it is unpopular not to do so. The growing spirit of kindliness and reconciliation between the North and South after the frightful difference of a generation ago ought to be a source of deep congratulation to all, and especially to those whose mistreatment caused the war. But if that reconciliation is to be marked by the industrial slavery and civic death of those same black men with permanent legislation into a position of inferiority, then those black men, if they are really men, are called upon by every consideration of patriotism and loyalty to oppose such a course by all civilized methods, even though such opposition involves disagreement with Mr. Booker T. Washington. We have no right to sit silently by while the inevitable seeds are sown for a harvest of disaster to our children, black and white. First, it is the duty of black men to judge the South discriminatingly. The present generation of Southerners are not responsible for the past, and they should not be blindly hated or blamed for it. Furthermore, to no class is the indiscriminate endorsement of the recent course of the South toward Negroes more nauseating than to the best thought of the South. The South is not solid. It is a land in the ferment of social change, wherein forces of all kinds are fighting for supremacy, and to praise the ill the South is today perpetrating is just as wrong as to condemn the good. Discriminating and broad-minded criticism is what the South needs, needs it for the sake of her own white sons and daughters and for the insurance of robust, healthy, mental and moral development. Today, even the attitude of the Southern whites toward the blacks is not, as so many assume, in all cases the same. The ignorant Southerner hates the Negro. The working men fear his competition. The moneymakers wish to use him as a laborer. Some of the educated see a menace in his upward development, while others, usually the sons of the masters, wish to help him to rise. National opinion has enabled this last class to maintain the Negro common schools and to protect the Negro partially in property, life, and limb. Through the pressure of the money-makers, the Negro is in danger of being reduced to semi-slavery, especially in the country districts. 
the working men and those of the educated who fear the Negro, have united to disfranchise him, and some have urged his deportation, while the passions of the ignorant are easily aroused to lynch and abuse any black man. To praise this intricate whirl of thought and prejudice is nonsense. To inveigh indiscriminately against the South is unjust. But to use the same breath in praising Governor Acock, exposing Senator Morgan, arguing with Mr. Thomas Nelson Page, and denouncing Senator Ben Tillman is not only sane, but the imperative duty of thinking black men. It would be unjust to Mr. Washington not to acknowledge that in several instances he has opposed movements in the South which were unjust to the Negro. He sent memorials to the Louisiana and Alabama Constitutional Conventions. He has spoken against lynching, and in other ways has openly or silently set his influence against sinister schemes and unfortunate happenings. Notwithstanding this, it is equally true to assert that on the whole, the distinct impression left by Mr. Washington's propaganda is, first, that the South is justified in its present attitude toward the Negro because of the Negro's degradation, secondly, that the prime cause of the Negro's failure to rise more quickly is his wrong education in the past, and thirdly, that his future rise depends primarily on his own efforts. Each of these propositions is a dangerous half-truth. The supplementary truths must never be lost sight of. First, slavery and race prejudice are potent, if not sufficient, causes of the Negro's position. Second, industrial and common school training were necessarily slow in planting because they had to await the black teachers trained by higher institutions, it being extremely doubtful if any essentially different development was possible and certainly a Tuskegee was unthinkable before 1880. And third, while it is a great truth to say that the Negro must strive and strive mightily to help himself, it is equally true that unless his striving be not simply seconded, but rather aroused and encouraged by the initiative of the richer and wiser environing group, he cannot hope for great success. In his failure to realize and impress this last point, Mr. Washington is especially to be criticized. His doctrine has tended to make the whites, north and south, shift the burden of the Negro problem to the Negro's shoulders and stand aside as critical and rather pessimistic spectators, when in fact the burden belongs to the nation, and the hands of none of us are clean if we bend not our energies to righting these great wrongs. The south ought to be led by candid and honest criticism to assert her better self and do her full duty to the race she has cruelly wronged and is still wronging. The North, her co-partner in guilt, cannot salve her conscience by plastering it with gold. We cannot settle this problem by diplomacy and suaveness, by policy alone. If worse come to worst, can the moral fiber of this country survive the slow throttling and murder of nine millions of men The black men of America have a duty to perform, a duty stern and delicate, a forward movement to oppose a part of the work of their greatest leader. So far as Mr. Washington preaches thrift, patience, and industrial training for the masses, we must hold up his hand and strive with him, rejoicing in his honors 
and glorifying in the strength of this Joshua called of God and man to lead the headless host. But so far as Mr. Washington apologizes for injustice, north or south, does not rightly value the privilege and duty of voting, belittles the emasculating effects of caste distinctions, and opposes the higher training and ambition of our brighter minds, so far as he, the South, or the nation does this, we must unceasingly and firmly oppose them. By every civilized and peaceful method, we must strive for the rights which the world accords to men, clinging unwaveringly to those great words which the sons of the fathers would fain forget. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. End of chapter 3